Hear now the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who was leaving on a trip. He called his servants and handed his possessions over to them. To one he gave five valuable coins, and to another he gave two, and to another he gave one. He gave to each servant according to that servant's ability. Then he left on his journey. After the man left, the servant who had five valuable coins took them and went to work doing business with them. He gained five more. In the same way, the one who had two valuable coins gained two more. But the servant who had received the one valuable coin dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five valuable coins came forward with five additional coins. He said, Master, you gave me five valuable coins. Look, I've gained five more. His master replied, Excellent, you are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come celebrate with me. The second servant also came forward and said, Master, you gave me two valuable coins. Look, I've gained two more. His master replied, Well done. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come celebrate with me. Now the one who had received one valuable coin came and said, Master, I knew that you are a hard man. You harvest grain where you haven't sown. You gather crops where you haven't spread seed. So I was afraid, and I hid my valuable coin in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. His master replied, You evil and lazy servant. You knew that I harvest grain where I haven't sown, and that I gather crops where I haven't spread seed. In that case, you should have turned my money over to the bankers, so that when I returned, you could give me what belonged to me with interest. Therefore, take from him the valuable coin and give it to the one who has ten coins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Spirit of wisdom, enlighten our hearts and minds and reveal the right and faithful use of money. Hold me up, God, that I might lift you up. Amen. So most people were unfamiliar with the disorder when the reality TV show Hoarding came out back in 2009, but almost instantly audiences were glued to the screen in morbid fascination as they watched interventionists pick through piles and piles of stuff stacked in these homes, ceiling to floor and wall to wall picking through what most of us might consider garbage, but to the featured subjects, this garbage was so precious, they couldn't bear to part with it. One of the most famous modern-day cases of hoarding was discovered in 1947 when an anonymous caller reported to the police what they thought smelled like a rotting corpse coming from a brownstone in Harlem, New York City. Those of you who are following the Earn, Save, Give study will have already read, perhaps, that police had to climb through a second-story window in that house because there was no way they could get in the front door because it was barricaded with stuff. 
Inside, they found Homer Collier in his chair, dead. For years, neighbors had gossiped about the strange habits of Homer, who was blind, deaf, and paralyzed, and his younger brother Langley. They'd been holed up in this house together for years, ever since their parents had died, and stories had spread all over the neighborhood about how these brothers had stacks of money and other valuables that they refused to leave unprotected, which was why they never, ever saw them leave their home. Turns out there was a lot of truth to those rumors. The whole house was packed but it was mostly with junk and garbage, including tons of boxes, more than 25,000 books. There were old pianos in this place. There was a collection of chandeliers, and there was even an old Model T chassis left in the middle of their house. They were paranoid that neighbors wanted to steal from them, so what they had done is they had taken all that clutter and garbage in their house, and they had engineered it into this complex system of mazes and tunnels that were booby-trapped to... um, that were booby-trapped with tripwires to catch suspected burglars. And then the Langley brothers lived in little nests that were hidden in the depths of this maze. They could not find Langley anywhere, the brother. Homer's cause of death was starvation, and police thought that it was because Langley had abandoned him. And so there was a manhunt that ensued, and it ended up spreading across six states because there were uh, presumed sightings that were being reported, but they turned up nothing. More than two weeks later, They found Langley in the house just 10 feet away from where Homer had died. He'd been crushed and suffocated by a tunnel that had collapsed on him. It seems that one of his very own booby traps is what had killed him. We didn't know a whole lot about hoarding necessarily, at least in the extreme cases, before that TV show came out, but it is by no means a new disorder or a new phobia. It's been around for a very long time. In fact, if you remember, Jesus tells a parable about a hoarder. He talks about a landowner who had this extraordinary crop come in one year. It was so profuse, he had no idea what he was going to do with all this stuff until a light bulb went off and he thought, I know what, I'll just build more barns, bigger barns. Then I can live off this grain for years and years and years, and I can enjoy the high life. Now, the problem was, if you remember the parable, is that he was going to die that very night. John Wesley's second rule guiding how we ought to relate to money is save all you can. I know to most Christians, this sounds counterintuitive, not to mention just downright unbiblical. I mean, didn't Jesus say to the rich young ruler, sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and then follow me? He also said things like, don't store up for yourselves riches on earth, but store your treasures in heaven where they won't rust or be stolen by thieves. We're told over and over again that we are to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and care for widows and orphans. 
Seems like all of those things would kind of sabotage any savings plan you might have. At 25 years old, Dorothy Ebersbach earned a pilot's license, which was extremely rare in 1939. She had had a fascination with flying ever since she and her father had flown together at um, the World's Fair in 1933. And after she got her license, her dad bought her a single-engine plane, and she used it to deliver supplies around the state for her family's business. Then after Pearl Harbor Day, Dorothy became part of an elite group of female flyers. They were known as the Women Air Force Service Pilots, or WASPs. She ferried new planes from the factory to military bases, and she tested newly repaired airplanes. And she even towed targets so the male pilots could practice their dogfight skills. In 2010, she and her fellow WASPs were awarded the Congressional Gold Medal for their service. She was an extremely committed person, particularly to community welfare, and so after the war, she worked in public health as a nurse until she retired when she was 61 years old. Now, Dorothy never made a whole lot of money, but she lived extremely modestly in a house that her father had built back in the 30s, and any money beyond what it took for her to live and the money that she gave to her church, she invested very wisely. She was a lifelong Methodist. When she died, her estate made the largest donation ever to her church's endowment fund that provided scholarships to kids who wanted to go to college or seminary. She also gave money to the local food bank, to the Methodist Children's Home, and to youth camps. And the most amazing thing that she did, as an expression of her very deep faith and her passion for education, nursing, and flying, she kind of brought all of those together and established the Dorothy Ebersbach Academic Center for Flight Nursing. And she completed the endowment to fund that with a $4.7 million donation. There is a definite difference between hoarding and storing up for yourself and investing what has been entrusted to you by God wisely for the purpose of serving others and for serving God's purposes in the world. Jesus told another parable about money that demonstrates the right use of money. It's the parable that we read just a few minutes ago, the parable of the valuable coins, or depending on which translation you read, the parable of the talents. Wesley's notion of saving had absolutely nothing at all to do with hoarding, either out of fear or to serve self. Neither the Collier brothers nor the rich landowner Um, who had to build bigger and bigger barns, would have impressed John Wesley at all. Saving, according to Wesley, had to do with the wise and prudent use of money. Prudent was a word that John Wesley liked a whole bunch. The two stewards who invested their master's money wisely served him 
and served his purposes very well. But the one who buried his lived fearfully and hoarded away what had been entrusted to him and didn't advance his master's agenda at all. Rather than faithfully and advantageously using those funds, completely disappointed him. Central to the use of money from a Christian perspective is the understanding that we are stewards of all that we have. Nothing actually belongs to us. All that is entrusted to us is a gift. It's all given by the giver of all gifts, our God. And we have the privilege for this short span of our lifetime to manage those gifts in a way that would honor God and serve God's purposes. As Christians, it's critical that we internalize this truth, that we really reflect on what it means for us. Saving for Wesley had more to do with being mindful of how you spent money and prayerfully and wisely discerning what it was that was necessary versus what was extravagant or decadent. Given all the purposes that money can actually serve, for example, John Wesley never got haircuts. It was really uh, not common at all for men in Wesley's time to wear long hair and no wig, but he refused to spend money on a haircut when there were so many people around him who were hungry. And he didn't believe in debt. He thought that you should do all that you could to live within your means, and if you did manage to accrue some debt, you should get out of it as quickly as possible. He would have loved Dave Ramsey. Second, he'd say, you don't need every single iPhone upgrade the second it becomes available. And you don't need to buy coordinating cases to go with every outfit you have. And buying shoes just because they're cute and they happen to be on sale would not impress Reverend Wesley. Completely counter to our culture, which glorifies immediate self-gratification and the use of credit, Wesley, and scripture by the way, wants us to have a far-sighted view of money. A view that serves God and not self. Sounds a little bit sad, but it's really not because it turns out that there's really not a whole lot that links happiness in the amount of money that you have. There was an article published in Time magazine following the economic crisis in, in 2007, and it reminded us that money doesn't buy happiness. The reporter wrote, scripture asserts this and research confirms it. Once you reach the median level of income, that at that time was cited at roughly $50,000 a year, wealth and contentment part ways. It's interesting. And again, a little bit counterintuitive, but a consumer mindset actually compels us to desire more and more than we can ever have. And so it generates this perpetual feeling of dissatisfaction or lack. But a thrifty mindset generates this experience of just genuine gratitude for whatever it is that we receive. 
Now, Wesley didn't have a problem with some personal savings. Again, it is prudent that we provide for the reasonable needs of our family. And so, according to Wesley, it was fine to put some money aside for um, unexpected expenses that might arise, for the education of your children, for some retirement. You should always have prudent planning. Again, that far-sighted view on how you're going to use money. There was one suggestion um, for ordering your finances that says 10% that you would give for tithing to the church, 10% that you would set aside for personal savings, and then use the other 80% to live on. Now, of course, it depends on what your income is, because in some cases, 80% could be well beyond what you need to live comfortably. So we're always called continually to be prayerfully discerning with the help of God's wisdom how best to use our money so that it serves and glorifies God. Now, to the landowner who built bigger barns so that he could store up all of his riches, God cries out, fool, now you'll die. And what's going to happen to all that grain? And to the steward who buries his coin that the master had entrusted to him, He says, give me that coin back. I'm going to give it to someone who knows how to use it wisely. We can't take any of the gifts that God provides us with us when we die. And we all die. And if you die, having squandered or hoarded all or most of what God gave you, I mean, you've truly lost your life. Or perhaps... You never truly lived. We can't take it with us. We are temporary stewards of resources that belong to God. In calling us to save all that we can, John Wesley's not inviting us to become hoarders, but he's challenging us to make wise use of the money God entrusts to us in ways that are consistent with God's purposes. It's not easy, but if we arrange our finances around our commitment to Christ, wisdom and faith will lead us. The saints that we will honor today are evidence of this. I mean, when they left this world, they didn't take any of the gifts God had given them with them. But the gifts they left behind for us Gifts wisely invested and used for God's purposes have blessed us in ways that have shaped who we are and how we live. Many of our saints have likely transformed the lives of people they've never met. In many ways, our saints have illumined our lives with the wisdom they gleaned from a life of faithfulness and growing relationship with God. Next week is Commitment Sunday, and in the spirit of John Wesley, I challenge all of us to pray every day this week that God's wisdom would guide us in the financial commitment that we will make to this church in 2018. And remember, while financial stewardship absolutely supports the mission and ministries of this church, the primary purpose for our reflection on giving is that it would grow us in our discipleship. 
The first time that I studied John Wesley's rules on money, this rule in particular, in particular um, struck me and inspired me to radically reorient my own finances. And what I discovered in that process was that I was able to pay off some debt that I had been carrying and at the very same time become more generous, which was the part that surprised me the most. I didn't have to wait until that debt was paid off to give more. This is important spiritual work, y'all. I know that many of you give to the church, but you haven't yet actually pledged. But pledging is important for many reasons, but most significantly, it's a step in faith to make a decision to orient your finances to serve God for the coming year. Secondarily, it's also helpful to the church for practical reasons because then we're able to plan strategically the ministry that we would engage in in the coming year as opposed to react on the back end if money happens to come in. So I hope that we will all prayerfully discern what we'll give in 2018 and that we'll fill out our commitment cards that hopefully you received in the mail or there's more out in the entryway that you'll bring them back next Sunday, remembering all week long in our prayer our reflection from Proverbs 3, which says, Happy are those who find wisdom and those who gain understanding. Her profit is better than silver and her gain better than gold. Amen.